Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Latko Vidral. He's a professor at the University of Oxford. He works on quantum information science. So, uh, Vladko, thank you for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Yeah, I know, you know, a little bit about uh, quantum mechanics and quantum type issues, but what, what is uh, quantum informational science? What's that about? Uh, quantum information science is about um, upgrading all the existing technologies that rely on the laws of classical physics, really, into the quantum realm, which is the realm that um, is obeyed by small objects like atoms and molecules and, and particles of light, photons and all of that. And what we are trying to do is encode bits of information, um, not into large systems um, like conductors, for instance, but we're trying to go down to the level of an individual atom. And of course, the laws of physics completely change from classical to quantum there. And instead of just having two different states, which encode one classical bit, we now get infinitely many states, if you like, uh, which which is what we call a quantum bit. So a quantum bit can be in two different states at the same time, which is really the, the key difference between quantum and classical information. So how do you think um, a transition from current computing would go to quantum-based you know, architecture? Is it the storage first would be you know, secured, let's say, by quantum cryptography? Would the transmission happen first? What order do you see things happening in? Yes, I think the... Um, the easiest thing to do, as you said, at least as a proof of principle, is, is quantum cryptography. Uh, because this really relies on uh, either sending individual quantum bits between two places or um, sharing entangled pairs of highly correlated quantum systems. But we're still talking about two quantum bits at a time. And of course, it's much easier to um, manipulate them, which would involve, let's say, thousands or even millions of quantum bits. So certainly we are talking in, in, in this near future term, we are talking quantum cryptography. We are talking possibly some memory, quantum memory storage. Uh, but even then, we're talking about a very small number of quantum bits that we can store. And then probably one day within maybe next uh, 10 years or so, we will talk about large-scale quantum computers. So how would um, quantum cryptography work? And then I want to ask you about uh, transmission of information oh, yes. that we can go into. Yeah. Yes, I think that's, that's the key issue there, which is um, this property that I mentioned of quantum bits, that they can exist in, in two different logical value at the same time. So you could have a logical zero and a logical one uh, simultaneously in what we call a superposition of, of states. 
So, you know, if you're thinking about an atom that you could use as a quantum bit, you'd be thinking about two different energy levels of this atom um, as your two possible states. Um, but of course, quantum mechanically, you could even have a superposition of these two energy levels. Now, the key issue uh, in quantum physics is that if, if you were to make a measurement on, on, on this state, then quantum physics says that you would randomly get one value or the other value, and there is a probability which is assigned to this event. And so what this means is that if, if two people are trying to communicate using quantum bits, then anyone who is trying to eavesdrop on this communication is actually forced to make this kind of measurement and is forced to collapse this quantum bit into one of these two classical values. So, so the key thing is that any eavesdropping uh, of this this kind would actually be detectable within quantum physics. So you, classically, of course, you can eavesdrop in principle and stay unnoticed. But because of this property of superpositions in quantum mechanics, whenever you make a measurement, you actually collapse this superposition to a classical state. And, and when an eavesdropper does something like this, then the users of quantum cryptography protocol could actually detect that, that someone was intercepting the message and, and trying to eavesdrop. But the act of receiving, you know, a, uh, a message in the quantum state would uh, decohere it. So you're, I guess also too, it makes it short-lived because um, you, know, you have the transmission time, but then as soon as the recipient receives it, they're collapsing it, the, the, the coherent state in order to interpret the information being received, right? Yes, you're right. So th this is a beautiful point that you are making there, that actually even the recipient of quantum information has to decohere it. Uh, so when Alice is sending a quantum bit to Bob, Bob actually has to make a measurement because otherwise you have this confused superposed state. Um, and, and of course, the, 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 you know, the key consequence of this really is that you will have to uh, use many quantum bits and you, have, you would have to repeat your communications so that by making a sequence of measurements, Bob can really get a definitive result. Um, and, and so on the one hand, uh, you suffer from this decoherence, as you say, from the collapse. But on the other hand, the advantage that you get is that anyone else trying to do the same in between uh, these, these two, the sender and the receiver, would also have to do exactly the same and therefore could, in principle, be detected. So, you know, you pay the price of, of a slower um, protocol, if you like. So the, the bit um, exchange rate in a quantum protocol would be lower than the classical. But on the other hand, you can, you can guarantee a higher degree of security than, than anything that's classically possible. But if you try to uh, attack or perturb the system or measure it continuously, yes. poll it, you know, every nanosecond or whatever, yes. would you also stop the transmission of information because that's needed to do so securely? Ah, uh, uh, a very good point as well. Uh, so basically you would do this with one quantum bit at a time. Um, and then you could reuse this bit, but you would have to re-prepare it in a quantum state. So you're right, you would first prepare a quantum state and send it across. Then the person making a measurement would collapse it. So in that sense, you could not reuse it again in that 
a very state that's collapsed, but you could prepare another quantum state and then send it back again to continue the protocol. So the whole protocol would be a sequence of preparations of quantum states, then sending them through a channel and then making a measurement that would collapse it back into a classical state. And then you would have to re-prepare this in a quantum way, send it back and, and so on. So you're absolutely right. What you want to ensure is that there is no other collapse than the users of this protocol. So you don't want any environmental noise, any other noise, any eavesdropping would, of course, be detrimental to this protocol. Well, um, could you use a quantum encrypted like envelope so that that would be the subject of attack and then in, the inside information would never be gotten to? Yes, that, 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 that's true. You could, you could somehow use a protective quantum system. Again, you couldn't, you couldn't really protect anything better than you can try to open this envelope, as you said, and, and read the message inside. Um, so, so the key thing is that you cannot prevent an eavesdropper from blocking your communication. So an eavesdropper can really catch all the qubits and decohere them and therefore, they can certainly spoil your transmission, but but the but the bottom line is really that they can never do that without being uh, noticed by by the recipient and the sender of the information. Uh, so it's possible to encrypt it, as you say, quantumly. And again, the advantage would be that uh, any eavesdropper would, in principle, be detectable. And I guess if you had a layered envelope system, you would know. Okay, you know we're being attacked or being sniffed, That's and it. maybe have time to trace it, or you know That's move it. to an alternate communication system. Exactly right. So that's how this would go. That you would say you would measure the bit rate, and you would realize, for instance, that the, the fidelity is lower than what you're prepared to tolerate, and that would automatically alert you to the possibility of of an eavesdropper being there, which means that you could just abort your protocol and, as you say, switch to another channel another mode of communication. That's exactly how this would work in practice. Well, how much information can be transmitted in one bit at a time? You know, how fast or how slow would it be? Oh, good. That's another good point. That really depends on the quantum, how you encode your quantum bits. Um, the fastest, of course, would be to encode it uh, in photons, in light, because you travel at the speed of light, which is the fastest possible speed according to the laws of physics. If you were to encode it into um, systems that have mass, um, like atoms or even electrons that are much lighter, they of course would have to move slower than the speed of light. Um, and of course, how quickly they, they move depends on the amount of energy that you would invest into this protocol. So the ideal case scenario would really be uh, to send photons between the sender and the receiver. And then, of course, the second part of your question is um, how many photons could I really send per second, let's say. Um, and this, again, depends on how cleanly you can produce these photons. So, for instance, you could, in principle, produce a single photon um, every femtosecond. So that's basically 10 to minus 15 seconds. So you could produce 10 to the power of 15 photons per second. This is not something we can do now, but in principle, the laws of physics would say you could send as many messages per second as the number of photons 
you can produce, which would be very rapid. Of course, these days, our transmission is much, much lower than that because the fidelity with which we can produce a clean single photon is not as high as this. So we are required to produce many more photons as a part of kind of error correction in order to get one clean quantum bit. But in principle, you can send, you can send a, a, a lot of quantum bits per second if, if you go down to the, to the level of what physics really allows you to do. Oh, okay. Okay. So you can still send a substantial amount of information quick enough. Very, very substantial. I think at the moment we are extremely slow, like I said, and that's because we are limited by the current technologies. So, you know, you, you'd be looking maybe into 1,000 quantum bits per second, which sounds ridiculously slow compared to the, the communication that we are even using now, the classical channel. But in principle, this could be billion times more, billion times faster or even more than that. So, so you know, it, it, it sounds very good what, what physics offers you there. What about using entangled systems and then there is no transmission, right? Or it's, I mean, yes. I guess physics thinks that it's either instantaneous or there is no transmission somehow. Yes, but it still gets there. That's right. Somehow with entangled systems, you are investing all the work um, ab initio. You're putting it into the preparation of these entangled systems. And maybe that's the challenge there, that what you want is you want to maintain this entanglement uh, over the distances that separate the sender and the receiver. And again, we spoke about decoherence earlier. Anything in the environment that interferes with these photons could, in principle, collapse, could decohere this entanglement. So somehow maintaining entanglement is much harder uh, than, than sending individual quantum bits. But again, the upshot of that, the advantage of that is that you really get the most secure form of quantum communication that you can get. So I think um, when you talk to the practitioners in, in, in quantum cryptography, the, uh, using entangled quantum bits is the preferred option, certainly in terms of security. But then again, you are paying a price in terms of robustness of this because it's more susceptible to, to noise and decoherence. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. When you entangle, uh, you know, two particles or two systems, do you then have to move one of the entangled particles to the target location or you know, how do you? Exactly right. Exactly right. You, you, you can entangle them in one place, as you said, you can produce them locally. And this again, depends on, on the technology that you are using. But with two photons, for instance, what would happen is you would use a piece of crystal that has a property that when you shine some light onto this crystal, it tends to emit photons in pairs. And they are really these entangled pairs that people have been using in all our current uh, optics experiments. Now, when you get that pair produced, you would have to make sure that one of these photons goes to the sender, if you like, and the other goes to the other location, to the receiver. So they would have to travel all this distance uh, in order to be used for quantum cryptography. Of course, alternatively, you could think of the sender creating the entangled pair and then sending one of these two particles to the receiver whilst keeping the, 
the other particles. So that's also possible. Oh, that seems like a lot of work to communicate. <laughs> yes, I think that's the, that's exactly the bottleneck of this is how many entangled pairs can we really exchange in this way to set things up? Because once you set them up, of course, you can just implement the protocol. But the tricky bit is really um, generating um, a large number of entangled pairs and making sure that they remain entangled and stable uh, before your communication starts. So for right now, at best, do you see a hybrid system coming where, um, you know, we'd have traditional fast communication through a network, but again, maybe you'd have quantum uh, encrypted envelopes that would, you know, sense any uh, intrusion? Yes, I think, I think again, people talk a lot. The, the word that you use is exactly um, what, uh, what we discuss these days, the hybrid system. So you're still going to rely on a very heavy classical information processing. Um, but then when you encounter parts that can be improved quantumly, that can be sped up just by using a very small number of quantum bits, then you switch and do that kind of as a subroutine on a quantum computer and then bring it all back onto this massive classical uh, parallel computation. So I think at the moment people are envisaging no more than let's say 100 quantum bits, um, which are very clean, high fidelity, and then coupled to a conventional um, fast classical computer that would actually do the bulk of this work. Um, and, and we don't know really when we are going to go beyond this uh, level. You know, we might be in this hybrid domain over the next uh, 10 years before we really figure out how to scale up quantum computers and make them more stable. Hmm, interesting. What do you think is possible, you know, I guess further out in the future? What would a really advanced system look like to you? What would it have? Oh, I think an advanced system would be would be really amazing because you'd be talking. I think already with uh, with more than one thousand quantum bits, you could you could really do computations that 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 cannot be done with all the classical computers put together uh, that we have currently. Um, so so we would have a huge exponential increase in terms of both the memory, the capacity, as well as the speed of of uh, of computation. Um, and I think the, the, the interesting thing is that we, we are now thinking frequently of computation as classical input. You know, we give our computer some classical data, then the computer does its work and processes this, and then it gives us back uh, classical output. What a quantum computer could do, actually, is something that a classical computer wouldn't even understand, of course. So it's not just about the speed of, of information processing but it's about the quality of info, what kind of information is, is really processed in, on this device. So a quantum computer would be able to operate, to act directly on a quantum input. So you could be able to put an input, which is an entangled state of quantum bits, then you process it on a quantum computer, and then your output could again be a genuine quantum state. So this is something that a classical machine would not even be able to understand. It just wouldn't be able to, to handle this kind of uh, information processing. So that's, that's where I think the field is going. And if you talk to a physicist like myself, I think we're really excited about simulating more and more complex systems. We can go with these ideas into chemistry, into biology, certainly, but people are already investigating 
um, simulating uh, complex financial systems, for instance, or weather patterns, all sorts of things like that, I think would become more tractable on a quantum computer. Um, I've heard that uh, errors uh, could be a big problem with quantum systems. Um, you know, how are people trying to control for error rate and error propagation right now? Yes, I think um, I think there are two aspects of that. That that really is the main the main issue, as you said. How do we control these errors? Because a quantum bit being in a superposition of two states, it's enough that it couples a little bit to its environment to actually. Uh, result in the decoherence and and effectively to the reduction of all of these quantum advantages to, to the simple classical computation. So at the moment, whatever qubit technology we have, it seems to me that, that uh, error rates are simply too high for us to be able to scale this up. Uh, so in, in some technologies, we can handle a small number of quantum bits you know, up to 10 quantum bits really well. But then because these errors simply multiply exponentially, the more qubits you get, the exponentially bad, you know, decoherence also gets. Um, We really don't have a a, a good stable enough medium that we can use directly to make quantum bits. So what we're forced to do at the moment is really isolate our systems from the environment. So what, what this entails, for instance, just to give you an example, is taking an atom and cooling it down to a very, very low temperature, uh, colder than a billionth uh, of, of room temperature. So a billion times colder than, than the room temperature that we are all used to. This is something that you need to do in order to achieve a certain a degree of stability for this atom to become a, a high fidelity qubit. Um, and of course, the problem is that as you add more and more qubits into this system, they, they get hotter, noisier, and it gets harder to actually keep them at a very low temperature at which they need to be. So what would be a, so the only solution we have for this currently is to do error correction, which means we add even more atoms we add a lot of redundancy there so instead of having one single atom as a qubit we have 100 atoms all simulating one logical quantum bit of information so there is a huge redundancy for every logical qubit we would need another 99 physical atoms to encode this logical qubit properly. And we don't really know. We know how to do this in theory, but we don't know how to do it in practice. The other possibility, which I think is also fascinating, is if someone could really come up with a system that's fully quantum and exhibits all of these superpositions, even at high temperature. So for instance, if if someone came up with a room temperature superconductor, so a substance that would superconduct even at the, at, the, at the room temperature that we experience, this would automatically become the top candidate for, for quantum information because it would be stable without having to invest any extra work into it. So this would be a breakthrough technology, but again, we don't happen to have anything of that kind at present. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Let go. What, what kind of timeline do you expect that, uh, I don't know, consumers will experience any of this technology do you think it's still 
a long way away, or are we getting close in some aspects? I think we're we're getting closer. We um, we probably from from 2000 onwards, uh, there really has been a, a huge increase in uh, both investment into into quantum technologies. And what's exciting, I think, is that initially, all of this investment was was basically governmental. I would say up until maybe three or four years ago when industry and some really heavy weight players started to get engaged. So now you have Google and and Microsoft and all sorts of other companies, actually a huge number of startups as well, um, all using different platforms to encode encode quantum uh, bits. And I I think since maybe three years ago, um, most of us um, has, have really become much more optimistic that this would happen sooner rather than rather than later. Um, so I think I, I, I really think you know at the moment, of course, what you can do, and I think this is in the public domain, you can actually um, use some of these IBM machines, for instance, cloud uh, quantum computers. But these are not very clean qubits, and I think you will never be able to use more than 20 to 50 quantum bits so they're not even proper quantum bits um, it's very hard to predict how quickly this will this will evolve but i'm guessing that within within a year or two we will have 100 clean when i say clean i mean fidelity 99.9 percent we will have 100 clean quantum bits um, and I think then we can already start to do something very exciting. Um, going beyond that, you know, with 1,000 quantum bits or 1 million quantum bits, we are certainly talking about 10 years and beyond. But I'm, I'm personally rather optimistic about this. Um, and I think these technologies, you know, when do they really become publicly available? It's really extremely hard to predict. You know, when, when are we going to have quantum laptops is, is the question. Um, and I think we are looking certainly, yes, we are looking at maybe 20 years beyond. But it sounds to me much sooner than what we would have predicted even 20 years ago. Well, uh, just last question. I know I should ask this earlier, but what um, I know there's various ways to, uh, to create qubits. What are some of the ways that you know of and um, maybe some of the trade-offs between the ways? You know, using loops of wire to uh, and, and using currents to make qubits versus uh, ion, trapped ions, et cetera. Like, can you describe a few of the ways that uh, in which qubits are made and maybe some of the advantages or disadvantages of them? Yes, I think you already mentioned the key. There are three, three key technologies that people pursue now. Superconducting qubits are, uh, are possibly the most appealing to people in industry. And I think there is a reason for that because this is a, a solid state um, domain technology. So, um, of course, all our classical computers are based on semiconductor technologies. And when you talk about superconductors, they are actually quite easy to integrate with the existing classical architectures and classical computers. So it seems to me that the reason why the industry, if you think about you know, Microsoft, Google, and IBM, if you ask yourself, why do, why do they prefer superconducting qubits? I think it's simply because they arise very naturally and they can be combined very naturally with the existing classical technologies. 
Um, that being said, a huge disadvantage of, of superconducting qubits. So here you're using a lot of electrons that can be moving in one direction or another direction. So you're talking about electrical currents that exist in two different states simultaneously inside the superconductor, and that's your quantum bit. The downside of this is that it's very hard to get a high fidelity superconducting quantum bit. They're really very noisy. If you look at, if you look at the current uh, computers that are on offer, already with 10 to 15 qubits and applying maybe less than even 100 gates to these 10 qubits, uh, your noise will be so large that your computation will effectively uh, be all but, but classical. So superconducting qubits, easy to integrate with the existing technologies, but very hard to improve as far as the fidelity is concerned. So scaling them up is not clear at all. Um, ions would be the preferred option to a physicist if you really want an ab initio clean qubit. So we know how to, how to control a single cold atom with a 99.9999% fidelity. You know, this is six nines. Um, so it's certainly a high enough fidelity that error correction could also, in principle, be applied to them. But of course, what's difficult with these technologies is that you have to engage lot, lots of cryogenics. You have to keep them cool, and this requires an awful lot of equipment, um, which comes um, completely as, as a new form of equipment, very different to anything we do classically. So ions would be the cleanest qubits in that sense, but the downside is that they are very hard to integrate with the existing solid state devices. And finally, the third technology that people are pursuing are photons, simply using light to do quantum computation. And again, you know, this has a bit of both of these technologies. In some sense, you could see how you can generate lots of photons, how you can uh, do certain operations with them but producing highly entangled states of these photons may actually be um, a big challenge. Um, and there are a few startups working, working on this that looks extremely exciting to me. But again, even going beyond you know, 10, 15, 20 photons with high fidelity, it's, it's very, very hard at the moment. What level of fidelity is really needed? I mean, 99.9, to a regular person probably sounds like, whoa, that's great fidelity. But yes, yes. You know, do we yes. need five or six decimal places of it, five or six nines in order to, to be commercially viable? Like what is needed? Yes, I think I think the question really depends on um, uh, how many extra qubits you really need to engage in order to be able to error correct. Uh, certainly anything beyond, uh, anything above 98% suffices in principle. To, to scale it up. But what, what, what you gain by improving the fidelity of even individual qubits is that you need less redundancy in order to scale it up to error correct. So of course, ideally you want to be in the limit where every physical qubit is also your logical qubit. You, have, you almost don't need any extra redundancy. And, and for that, you really need to go beyond uh, what, what we've been discussing. But certainly anything above 98% already gets you into the regime where you can do quantum error correction. So, all right. So the systems are superconducting qubits, 
uh, trapped ions. And what's the third one? Uh, photonics, pure photons, basically just using light, using individual photons to encode qubits in different degrees of freedom. Oh, what's the upside and downside of doing that? Um, yeah, the upside maybe of, of doing this is that it's uh, not difficult to produce uh, these photons. Uh, you can almost produce single photons on demand these days. You can excite a molecule and then as the molecule emits, um, it will emit a single photon in, in, uh, in some regime. So it's very easy, relatively easy compared to ions. Let's put it that way. It's relatively easy to produce photons. But what's really difficult with them is that it's very difficult to get them to interact with one another. So doing logical gates with photons is difficult. So in some sense, you can achieve a certain degree of uh, noise robustness. And, and it seems to me this is possible with photons. But what's difficult then is to make an efficient sequence of gates uh, with photonics. So I, I think no one really believes that photons on their own will be the ultimate qubits. It could be that photons will be used for communication be between different, let's say, ionic qubits or superconducting qubits. But on their own, it it's unlikely probably that we will have all photonic um, quantum computer. Okay. Well, very good. Latko, what's the best yeah. way for people to uh, find out more about your research and to follow up with you? Uh, the best thing is probably to go on my website. And I think there will be a description of the research that I do. It will describe uh, maybe four different areas uh, all within quantum information and computation that people can explore. And this is both on the theoretical as well as experimental side. So probably the best thing is just to Google my name and, and they will come to my, to my research website and then there will be quite a lot of information there. Of course, if they want to go beyond, then they are welcome to just email me and, and uh, ask me directly about it. Okay, for listeners, your name is spelled V-L-A-T-K-O. K-O. The last name is V-E-D-R-A-L. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Letko, thank you for coming Great. on the podcast. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.